Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! Working closely with Congress, the U.S. will commit $55 billion to Africa over the course of the next three years across a wide range of sectors to tackle the core challenges of our time. These commitments build on the United States' longstanding leadership and partnership in develop, development, economic growth, health and security in Africa over the past three decades. The Biden administration's hosting leaders from 49 African nations for a three-day summit in Washington, organized in part to counter the growing influence of China and Russia in Africa, will get the latest. Then to Arizona, where the outgoing Republican Governor Doug Ducey is using shipping containers and razor wire to build a makeshift border wall. Follow the law, Governor Ducey. And what you're doing is you're, you're making a catastrophic uh, mistake that I, I dare say will, will come to not bode very well for your legacy. And we'll look at the significance of Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema's decision to leave the Democratic Party, registering as an independent. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Leaders of the G7, including President Joe Biden, have agreed to set up a multi-agency platform to coordinate aid to Ukraine. Monday's agreement followed a virtual summit between G7 leaders and the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who appealed for new shipments of tanks, artillery, long-range rockets and other weapons. Zelensky also called on allies to ship natural gas to Ukraine amidst rolling blackouts caused by a wave of Russian attacks on Ukraine's electricity infrastructure. The terrorism against our power stations resulted in the necessity of using more gas than we had planned. That's why we need more support, especially this winter. We are talking about an additional 2 billion cubic meters of natural gas. This is the extra amount we need to buy. Overnight, Ukraine's military damaged a key bridge near the Russian-occupied city of Melitopol in southern Ukraine in the latest setback for Russian forces. In Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin has canceled his annual end-of-year press conference for the first time in a decade amidst rising domestic criticism over his handling of the war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Viktor Booth, the former Soviet military officer who became known as the Merchant of Death for trafficking arms to dictators, also worked with the United States, has joined the pro-Kremlin ultra-nationalist LDPR party. Booth was released from a U.S. prison last week in exchange for WNBA basketball star Brittany Greiner. Greiner has not spoken publicly since her return, but her agent said she's doing well and was able to play basketball Sunday for the first time in nearly 10 months. Her first act on the court was reportedly a slam dunk. 
The disgraced founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX was arrested in the Bahamas Monday after U.S. prosecutors filed criminal charges against him, including wire fraud, securities fraud and money laundering. The arrest of Sam Bankman-Fried came a month after FTX collapsed virtually overnight, revealing an $8 billion hole in the company's balance sheet. This morning, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission filed a civil complaint accusing Bankman-Fried of orchestrating a scheme to defraud fraud equity investors in FTX. The company's rapid collapse has been compared to the Ponzi scheme overseen by disgraced financier Bernie Madoff. Bankman-Fried's arrest came just one day before he was scheduled to testify to the House Financial Services Committee and after he refused to accept another subpoena ordering him to testify to the Senate Banking Committee. Meanwhile, Bloomberg reports bankruptcy lawyers may attempt to claw back at least $73 million of political donations tied to FTX. Federal Election Commission data show Bankman-Fried was the second-largest campaign contributor in the 2022 midterm elections, with nearly $40 million given to Democratic campaigns and super PACs. Human rights groups are warning Iran's government may be preparing to execute more protesters after authorities publicly executed 23-year-old Medjidreza Renovard early Monday morning. Ranavard was hanged from a metal crane with his hands and feet bound and a black bag over his head. He was convicted of killing two members of paramilitary forces in a secretive trial where he wasn't allowed to choose his own lawyer or challenge the evidence against him. When his mother visited him, she was reportedly not notified he'd be executed soon after. This comes as the European Union has imposed new sanctions on Iranian senior officials, religious leaders and top state media employees over human rights abuses as the brutal crackdown on anti-government protesters intensifies and for supplying drones to Russia to use in Ukraine. In Afghanistan, at least three people were killed and 18 others injured Monday as gunmen attacked a hotel in the capital, Kabul. The multi-story Kabul Longan Hotel is popular among Chinese nationals, although all the dead and most of the wounded were Afghan civilians. The Islamic State affiliate known as ISIS-K took responsibility for the assault. Meanwhile, human rights groups are condemning the Taliban for bringing back public executions and floggings. Last week, a man convicted of murder was fatally shot in front of a crowd at a soccer stadium in Farah province by the victim's father. In recent days, Taliban courts have also ordered dozens of men and women flogged in sports stadiums. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces shot and killed a 16-year-old girl Monday during a raid in the city of Jenin. Witnesses say Janamajdi Zakarne was standing on the roof of her home when she was struck by several bullets. This is her cousin Yasser Zakarne. 13 shots were fired by the occupation forces at Jannah. Four hit her body, two in the head, and two in the chest. She was killed by the occupation forces. Their bullets are here, and the occupation army was around 500 meters away from her, in the building in front of her. All the bullets shot were fired from the same building. Israel's military acknowledged its troops killed a teenage girl, claiming soldiers hit her unintentionally after allegedly firing a Palestinian gunman in the area. According to the United Nations, this year has already seen the highest number of Palestinians killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank since 2006. 
In Brussels, authorities have raided the homes and offices of European Parliament lawmakers, accusing them of accepting bribes from government officials in Qatar. Belgian police have so far arrested four people and recovered hundreds of thousands of euros in cash. Among those arrested is European Parliament Vice President Eva Kaili. In the lead-up to the World Cup, Kaili repeatedly defended Qatar against critics who pointed to the monarchy's dismal record on workers' rights and its persecution of LGBTQ people. Qatar has denied bribing European officials. Katerina Barley, head of the Socialists and Democrats bloc on Monday, called the scandal a major test of accountability for the European Parliament. For us, this, of course, is the greatest possible disaster. We, as the European Parliament, and especially we as a party and a parliamentary group, have dedicated ourselves to the fight against corruption. And when something like this happens in our own ranks, it is a serious crisis for us. In Tunisia, protesters took to the streets of Tunis Saturday to oppose upcoming parliamentary elections, which are taking place under a new constitution enacted under President Kais Sayed, who critics say has orchestrated a coup. This is the opposition politician Jawar Ben Mubarak. Every step Kais Saeed has made in implementing the coup roadmap, the more the country's crisis increases and the political suffocation closes in on the country. Today he's presenting elections and an attempt to lay out the foundations for a legislative coup authority. In Peru, protests have spread as anger mounts over the impeachment and jailing of the leftist president, Pedro Castillo. Thousands of people took to the streets of Lima, Arequipa, and across northern Andean towns Monday, demanding newly appointed President Dina Baluarte hold new presidential elections early, after she said they'll take place in April 2024. At least seven people have died in clashes with security forces. Hundreds gathered outside Peru's Congress in Lima Monday and set up a barricade despite the threat of police violence. The police have cornered us from all sides. They have thrown tear gas bombs at us. We are protesting because the Peruvian press is garbage and is not reporting this news. Back in the United States, a federal jury in Washington, D.C., heard opening arguments Monday as the trial of four members of the far-right Oath Keepers militia group got underway. They're accused of joining a seditious conspiracy to stop the transfer of power from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. The trial follows the conviction last month of Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes on charges he conspired to overthrow the U.S. government January 6, 2021. This comes as the Project and Government Oversight reports over 300 people listed on the Oath Keepers membership roles have worked for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, taking up jobs with the Coast Guard, Border Patrol, ICE, and the Secret Service. In Nevada, over a dozen people at the Ely State Prison remain on hunger strike, protesting unsafe, inhumane conditions. The peaceful action began December 1st, with at least 40 prisoners joining the hunger strike, according to the ACLU. Among other demands, they're calling for an end to the extended use of solitary confinement, abuse from guards, due process violations, and for the prison to provide adequate health care and address safety concerns. 
In Cuba, three Democratic U.S. Congress members traveled to Havana over the weekend to meet with the Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel and other Cuban officials in a rare visit to the island by U.S. lawmakers. After the meeting with Congress members Jim McGovern, Mark Pocan, and Troy Carter, the Cuban president repeated his call for an end to the catastrophic U.S. economic sanctions on Cuba and expressed willingness from the two countries to improve bilateral relations. In Virginia, the city of Richmond removed its last Confederate statue Monday. The monument was to Confederate General A.P. Hill. Richmond began removing its Confederate statues amidst the massive racial justice protests that erupted nationwide after the police killing of George Floyd in May of 2020. Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy for most of the Civil War. And New York City is naming a gate in Central Park in honor of the five black and Latinx men who, as teenagers, were wrongfully convicted of the 1989 beating and rape of a white woman. The words, Gate of the Exonerated, will be carved on the entrance at the northern end of Central Park in the neighborhood of Harlem. The Central Park Five were exonerated in 2002 after the real perpetrator confessed and DNA evidence linked him to the assault. By then, the group had already served prison terms of up to 13 years. They were between 14 and 16 years old at the time of their arrest. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Leaders of 49 African nations are in Washington, D.C. this week for a three-day Africa summit organized by the Biden administration. The U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit comes as the United States is trying to counter the growing influence of China and Russia in Africa. On Monday, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, revealed the United States is pledging $55 billion in economic health and security support for Africa over the next three years. Working closely with Congress, the U.S. will commit $55 billion to Africa over the course of the next three years across a wide range of sectors to tackle the core challenges of our time. These commitments build on the United States' longstanding leadership and partnership in develop, development, economic growth, health and security in Africa over the past three decades. During the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, President Biden's expected to express support for the African Union to join the G20 and to push for the United Nations Security Council to include a permanent member from Africa. Axios is also reporting Biden's planning his first trip as president to sub-Saharan Africa next year. The Washington summit comes as Africa faces numerous crises from the climate emergency to political instability. Over the past two years, there have been coups in Mali, Sudan, Burkina Faso and Guinea. U.S. trained officers led several of those coups. The four nations were not invited to the Washington summit. Neither was Eritrea or leaders from Western Sahara, which has been occupied by Morocco since the 1970s. One prominent African leader who will not be attending this week's summit is South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, who faces possible impeachment over corruption allegations. The summit comes as the U.S. continues to expand its military presence in Africa. President Biden recently sent U.S. troops back into Somalia, reversing an order by Donald Trump to withdraw troops. We're joined now by two guests. Lena Ben-Abdullah is an assistant professor of politics at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. She She's the author of Shaping the Future of Power, Knowledge Production and Network Building in China-Africa Relations. And Samar Abalushi is a 
an anthropologist at the University of California, Irvine, focusing on policing militarism and the so-called war on terror in East Africa. She's also a contributing editor for the publication Africa is a Country and a fellow at the Quincy Institute. Her forthcoming book is titled War Making and World Making. In August, uh, the professors co-wrote an article titled Biden Administration Needs to Match Rhetoric with Action on Africa Policy. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Now, Professor Samar al-Balushi, let's begin with you. Talk about the significance of the summit, why the U.S. is holding it, um, uh, the Washington, D.C. meeting of 49 African leaders, who's there and who isn't. Good morning, Amy. It's great to be with you. Uh, uh, the summit comes at a time when the U.S. and the Biden administration specifically is hoping to demonstrate its commitment to Africa at a time when Africa's geostrategic significance is on the rise and at a time when U.S. influence on the continent is on the decline. So I think in the next few days, I think we can expect a good degree of performance and theater. Um, uh, the U.S. will be attempting to demonstrate that it uh, respects African leaders as, Af as equal partners, that it respects the sovereignty of African states. We can expect to hear a lot of talk about shared goals um, on issues ranging from peace and security to democracy, development and climate change. And all in all, I think the U.S. is hoping to signal that it is doing something new and different here when it comes to U.S.-Africa policy in the sense that it is taking African states seriously as geostrategic players in their own right. Now, when you look between the lines, you'll see that there are tensions that remain um, with, you know, tensions between this rhetoric and mainstream thinking in Washington, D.C. And I'm thinking here especially of Congress, which continues to be dominated by Cold War thinking that views Africa almost entirely through the lens of security and through the lens of geopolitical rivals. And here I'm thinking specifically of Russia and China. We can take the example of a bill that was passed in the House earlier this year, almost unanimously. This bill was called Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa Act, and the title speaks for itself, right? The objective of this bill is to monitor and effectively police Africa in its relations with Russia in terms of the kinds of agreements and partnerships that it might enter into. And— um, some have interpreted this bill as an explicit response to and, and in some ways even a form of punishment of African states for the way in which they voted at the U.N. General Assembly earlier this year in the wake of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. You may recall that a good number of countries abstained in that vote. African states uh, represented about half of those countries that abstained, roughly 17 of them. And uh, the U.S. was extremely frustrated by these developments and failed to take into account the extent to which African states were making this decision on their vote based on their own geopolitical interests. The U.N. Uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, went out of her way to talk down to those African states that abstained, to chastise them, to tell them that, you know, they don't seem to understand uh, the seriousness of 
what has unfolded. And we can see this kind of similar patronizing language evident in the text of the bill of this Countering Malign Russian Activities Act, in the sense that the U.S. presents itself as wanting to, quote-unquote, shield African states from the, quote-unquote, malign uh, activities of Russia. Now, at no point in the bill do they define what constitutes malign, but the U.S. positions itself as uh, morally superior and as well-placed to, you know, um, lecture African states in their relationships with other powers. Now, we've also seen African leaders push back, right? A number of them have called out precisely this bill for the degree to which it is an insult to African sovereignty. And I think we can expect in the coming days that even as many African leaders play along with the rhetoric of shared goals and with the rhetoric of equal partnership, that behind the scenes they are deeply aware of the unequal power dynamics that continue to shape U.S.-Africa relations. I want to go back to Monday's news briefing with the White House, where National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan took questions about the Africa summit. As China looks to increase its influence on that continent, I'm curious, will the president seek to deliver any kind of message or word of warning uh, to these African leaders that Beijing, whether it's through their financing or economic or, or military aid, um, is not, in fact, uh, a faithful ally or, or partner? This is going to be about what we can offer. It's going to be a positive proposition about the United States' partnership with Africa. It's not going to be about other countries. It's not going to be attempting to compare contrast. It's rather going to be about the affirmative agenda that the United States has to bring to bear with Africa. Professor Lena Ben-Abdullah, if you can respond to this, and you particularly look at um, Africa when it comes to you, the relationship between China and Africa, and if you can include that in your response. Thank you so much, Amy, for having me. Um, it, it, it makes sense for uh, U.S. government officials to say and distance themselves from uh, framing this summit and framing U.S. foreign policy towards Africa in the language of countering China. Uh, but this does not take away from the fact that China is definitely looming in the background. We know uh, this summit uh, is the second edition that the U.S. is hosting for African leaders. The first one was uh, held in 2014. But on the China-Africa side, there have actually been eight editions of such summits and meetings. So the first one uh, was held in the year 2000. Uh, and the, 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 it's called the China-Africa Forum, uh, or the Forum for China-Africa uh, um, Cooperation, uh, short, uh, known as FOCAC. Uh, and it has, and, and, and the China-Africa um, uh, Forum edition actually has been um, uh, held systematically every three years, and it has been uh, uh, taken place every three years since the year 2000. So there is more stability in that uh, uh, relationship, looking at the, the forum or the summit diplomacy, as it were. Uh, for the U.S., we know that uh, the, the Biden administration has been trying to see uh, how the U.S. can come back to the scene uh, of Africa and to the scene of, of trying to show a partnership with African countries. And the first thing that comes to mind is the summit diplomacy, because it is that precisely that theatrical element of inviting these leaders, bring them, bringing them in, uh, shaking hands, meeting, doing these press conferences and so on and so forth, 
what more uh, can show visibility of, of, of sort of this reigniting uh, U.S.-Africa relations. Uh, but everybody knows in the back that, uh, in the back of their minds, that, that there is definitely China, even if it's not spoken, uh, the uh, contrast and the comparison between what the U.S. is doing in Africa and what China is doing in Africa is definitely present in, 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 in African leaders' minds as well. That, um, uh, and we have seen uh, African leaders be extremely pragmatic in their relations. They have been uh, very vocal about telling the U.S. and telling other partners that they are not interested in choosing sides in these relationships. Uh, as Samar was saying, African leaders see themselves as geopolitical players uh, of their own right. Uh, and uh, this means that they are uh, interested interested in shaping the relations with these foreign powers on their own terms, rather than uh, being told or pressured uh, or scolded uh, in, 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 in choosing or in, in shaping the relations with powers here or there. So African leaders, you know, meet with China. The latest uh, summit took place in November 2021. Um, this was co-hosted uh, between China and Senegal. Uh, and they are uh, ready and excited to meet with partners from all over the place. And so they are they respond to calls uh, from the U.S. to meet. Uh, and it will be interesting to see what the U.S. kind of puts on the table in terms of concrete uh, um, aspects of the relationship. And this has been the, the, the issue with the U.S. Uh, and its uh, foreign policy towards Africa. There is There has been a lot of rhetoric so far, this rhetoric about partnership, this rhetoric about uh, taking Africans seriously, this uh, rhetoric about the shared goals, as some are mentioned. But we need to see more than this rhetoric. There needs to be concrete initiatives and projects put on the table so that this relationship can move forward. Um, and in um, so far as uh, comparisons with China, it makes sense for the U.S. to stop making those direct links because it is pretty difficult for the U.S. right now to catch up to kind of what China has been doing in the continent. And so it, it just makes sense for the U.S. to, to, to uh, pretty much uh, try to, to hone in its own competitive advantage, uh, even though we all know in the back, uh, countering China and Russia is definitely a huge part of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, general uh, national security strategy, uh, uh, agenda. I wanted to also mention something very briefly which is to say the timing of the summit uh, is, is, is really interesting. We, we first heard that the U.S. was interested in hosting the second edition of U.S. Uh, African Leaders Summit back in October. This was actually scheduled to take place in October at the tail end of the United Nations General Assembly meeting in New York. But what happened was the Biden administration chose to push uh, back this meeting to December and host uh, leaders from uh, the Pacific Islands. And there was a summit between the U.S. and Pacific Island nations uh, at the, in October at the tail end of the United Nations General Assembly. And this tells us a little bit about the priorities that the U.S. government actually gives Africa in, in practical sense, in, in, in this urgency of the meeting. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we all know when the Solomon Islands and China signed a, a security pact, um, an agreement, security agreement in, 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 in uh, the late summer, early fall, that uh, basically uh, was probably one of the reasons why we see the U.S.-Africa uh, Leaders Summit uh, pushed to December when it was actually scheduled for October. 
So, you know, in reality, you know, when you look at U.S. foreign uh, or national uh, uh, strategy policies and, and priorities, Africa is not really at the top. And African leaders know these things. And so they are interested in seeing what practical and concrete initiatives the U.S. government can put in front of them instead of uh, these kind of performances and, 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 and these kind of rhetoric level um, initiatives. Let me ask uh, Professor Abelushi about um, Biden uh, supporting um, a move for an African seat on the U.N. Security Council and also announcing that he wants the African Union to join the G20 as a permanent member. The significance of this. I think what's significant about um, about these statements from the Biden administration is how late they are coming in the sense that other leaders, other governments have been at the forefront of calling for precisely these things, right? Having a permanent seat on the Security Council, having a permanent seat at the G20. And the U.S. is effectively late to the table, right? And only making these proposals because it knows that it has to, because it knows that if it doesn't support um, more of a role for Africa on the global stage, that it will lose out to the other powers that are, that have been saying this, that have been making this case uh, for many years now. Um, finally, uh, and I don't know which one of you would like to take this on, you know, we just came back from Egypt where we covered the U.N. Climate Summit and also broadcast from Cairo. And we um, <clears throat> reported on the tens of thousands of political prisoners who are held in Egypt, uh, the most prominent of them, the political prisoner, um, Ala Abdel Fattah. Uh, President Sisi is part of this um, Africa Summit. There's discussions of democracy and representation. Uh, the significance of this, the, uh, him wanting to have a sit-down meeting with President Biden, uh, President Biden, the chance, German Chancellor, the British Prime Minister, the French President Macron, all calling for, uh, demanding to know what's happening in his case, and in some cases calling for his release. Um, I, I can just—go oh, ahead, go ahead, Summer. You go ahead, Lena. Um, I just wanted to mention very uh, uh, briefly what we are seeing from this uh, administration. There is this um, um, willingness to treat uh, Africans in a way that's um, more open, inclusive, more uh, thinking about the, the language, the rhetoric, and not speaking at African leaders. There's um, a sensitivity around the language uh, that uh, we are used to in terms of Western leaders speaking at Africans in terms of uh, questions of human rights, democracy, governance, and so on and so forth. Uh, one of the things that lots of Africans, uh, leaders and analysts um, kind of critique the U.S. about is precisely uh, this point. They say, for instance, in the relationship to China, they don't ever feel like they are being talked at. Um, so it is possible we are seeing um, this uh, uh, the, the administration with this summit uh, potentially staying away from lecturing at Africans in terms of human rights issues. Uh, we are seeing uh, lots of African leaders being invited from different regimes, different backgrounds, different government styles. Uh, and it is possible that this is also in, the, in, in sort of in that spirit of competing with China to try to say we're also able to um, uh, speak and, and kind of converse with Africans on issues that are of common um, uh, common or shared uh, interest rather than uh, continuing that sort of 
tradition of Western leaders lecturing kind of African But it's not just leaders. Western leaders, and I'd like to ask Professor Abelushi this yeah. question. Of course, it's many Egyptians are also deeply concerned, especially because so many tens of thousands are in prison. Yeah, so I think, you know, um, Egyptians, Africans as a whole are deeply aware of the double standards um, that the U.S. operates from, right? They're deeply aware of the fact that uh, the U.S. engages in its own anti-democratic behavior, both at home and abroad. Africans will never forget the role that the U.S. played in uh, deposing and assassinating Patrice Lumumba in the Congo in the 1960s. They haven't forgotten the role the U.S. played in deposing um, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya more recently, right? So I think that— um, and let's not forget that there was a coup attempt in the United States last year. So what is significant here is that the U.S. doesn't have the moral authority to be, you know, calling certain governments democratic or not not democratic, right? And in a context like Egypt, it becomes very difficult for the U.S. to be the one to weigh in precisely because of its own dem anti-democratic uh, behaviors. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. Uh, Samar Al-Balushi is associate professor of—is assistant professor of anthropology at University of California, Irvine. And Lena Ben-Abdullah is assistant professor of politics at Wake Forest University. Next up, we go to Arizona, where the outgoing Republican Governor Doug Ducey is using shipping containers and razor wire to build a makeshift border wall. We'll look at the fight to stop it. Stay with us. So so I, 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 so Ibe sara la musola hatunya musola kula mogelema Ibe konota segena kidimolo segena hakika no la mo abada Kata la mola ibo di la mola kika no to no dun abada sa Soa by Fatumata Daiwara. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to the U.S.-Mexico border. The Biden administration's asked Congress to greenlight more than $3 billion to further militarize the border as the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy that expelled over 2 million migrants without due process is set to end a week from today. A record number of asylum seekers have been apprehended along the southern border in recent months, uh, including more than 2,400 over the weekend in El Paso, Texas. The three-day daily average of migrants coming over the border is about 2,400 per day. Meanwhile, in Arizona, immigration and environmental activists are denouncing the illegal construction of a makeshift wall along its border with Mexico, built with hundreds of double-stacked shipping containers and razor wire. 
The project is led by outgoing Republican Governor Doug Ducey, who says he's trying to fill up the gaps left in the former President Donald Trump's unfinished border wall. The shipping containers snake through part of the Coronado National Forest in southern Arizona's Cochise County. And construction has continued despite an ongoing legal battle between Governor Ducey and the federal government, with crews continuing to stack more shipping containers, reportedly working at night to avoid protesters, even as some of the containers erected earlier have already fallen over. Now, activists are increasing efforts to block the construction, which they say is destroying precious desert biodiversity and is forcing asylum seekers to take even more dangerous routes along the border to come to the United States for refuge. Meanwhile, it's unclear what incoming Democratic governor Katie Hobbs will do with the container wall. For more, we go to Arizona to speak with two guests. In Tucson, Miles Traphagan is with us. He's the Borderlands Program Coordinator for Wildlands Network, has worked in the deserts, mountains, and grasslands of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands for over 20 years. He's a tribal member of the Chickasaw Nation. With us in Phoenix, Arizona, is Alejandra Gomez, Executive Director of Living United for Change in Arizona, or Lucha Arizona. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Miles, let's begin with you in Tucson. Talk about um, <clears throat> this, uh, what many have described as a monstrosity along the border. Two shipping containers high going on for how far and what parts of the border and what's happening to the land around it. And we'll then talk about the migrants. Well, thank you, Amy. Um, currently, there's 3.5 miles of shipping containers that begin at Coronado National Memorial, which is a National Park Service managed property. And they snake through the Coronado National Forest. Uh, and this happens to be uh, federal land owned by the federal government and you and me. And this is in designated critical habitat for the endangered jaguar. Uh, in addition to that, there's um, uh, the endangered ocelot, which the northernmost uh, breeding population lies just 30 miles to the south. So um, the environmental consequences in regards to wildlife and wildlife migration and connectivity uh, could not be more severe in this particular location, which has exceptionally high biodiversity and uh, probably arguably some of the highest in the West as far as number of species and endangered species on the Coronado National Forest. And talk about what gives uh, Governor Ducey the authority. Where is the money coming from? Um, and what are people doing around this wall that are resisting it? Well, um, Governor Ducey does not have the authority because this is on federal land. And um, so it's uh, totally illegal what's happening. Um, the Department of uh, Emergency Military Affairs has provided the funding for this, which is um, a $95 million contract that was given to Ash Britt, which typically does uh, FEMA type of uh, disaster relief projects. Um, the Coronado National Forest was established in 1902. 
five years later, the Roosevelt Reservation was established by President Theodore Roosevelt. This is a 60-foot-wide strip that begins just west of El Paso on the Rio Grande and goes all the way to the Pacific Ocean. This allows the federal government uh, to have uh, control over this area for um, border security and, and commerce purposes. Um, the Secretary of Homeland Security has the authority under the Real ID Act of 2005 to waive all laws for the construction of border barriers. Um, this is a, a very scary thing that Americans should be very concerned about this law. But the Arizona governor does not have this authority. Um, the establishment of the Coronado National Forest and the Roosevelt Re Reservation predates the uh, Arizona statehood, uh, which uh, took place in 1912. So uh, the Department of Justice has uh, ordered the shipping containers to, to be removed and the construction to stop. Uh, yet the, the governor continues to um, disregard those orders. Where do the shipping and containers currently come there's from? Also a, well, it's, it's hard to say where they come from. I mean, shipping containers are ubiquitous. Um, it, it's, it's very ironic that, um, you know, most of these are, you know, have Chinese labels on them. Um, so uh, they are just, uh, they have these scattered at various storage yards around southern Arizona. And uh, they're basically being trucked on flatbed pickup trucks towed by your standard um, heavy-duty pickup truck and um, being stacked on the National Forest. However, uh, due to the terrain in this area, there's a lot of undulating uh, topography and washes and drainages. Um, it's a very incomplete and somewhat permeable uh, barrier, although uh, in many places it's completely impermeable to wildlife such as white-tailed deer, mule deer, javelina, jaguar, ocelots, etc. Where are the federal agents and authorities on this federal land trying to stop this? This is what we are all wondering. Um, it's quite amazing that um, there's simply been no law enforcement response. You know, where are the U.S. Marshals? Where is Secretary of Interior Thomas Vilsack on this? Where's um, Secretary, uh, or excuse me, Agriculture Secretary? Um, same goes for um, Interior Secretary Deb Haaland. You know, why aren't they mobilizing, um, you know, a federal law enforcement response when this is a blatant disregard of the law? Uh, you have said this is a real threat to democracy, Miles, uh, that it is uh, a slippery slope towards fascism. Why? Uh, that, that's, that's totally true, uh, and I don't throw that around lightly. Um, let's begin with the Real ID Act of 2005. Uh, this was passed in the wake of 9-11, and, you know, you ask yourself, how can the Secretary of Homeland Security, which is a politically appointed unelected official have the ability to waive laws uh, dating back to 1890 and, uh, and up to uh, almost the present. These laws include the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Native American Graves Protection Act, etc. Up to about 60 laws have been waived for the construction of border barriers. Um, uh, it, it's quite amazing that you know both houses of Congress passed these laws uh, and signed into law by whoever the sitting president was, and then surviving a century of judicial review. Um, I think Americans need to be very concerned about this because this pertains to uh, probably about 80% of the whole U.S. population would lie in the jurisdictional zone 
uh, of border security, which is 60 miles from the, the border, both on the Canadian side and the Mexico side. Um, so we need to be vigilant about protecting our democracy. Um, Homeland Security uh, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is in uh, El Paso today. I wanted to bring Alejandro Gomez into this conversation with Lucha, Arizona. Um, can you talk about what this means for migrants coming over the border? Yes. You know, what we have seen um, for our communities is that the there, is, there has been, from Governor Ducey and also the Arizona legislature, uh, over $300 million that were um, um, allocated in this past legislative session for um, extending the border wall, uh, for the criminalizing and the targeting of migrants that are simply coming over um, in search of a better life for their families. And so we have been vigilant, you know, in, in this past uh, election cycle, we knocked over 450,000 doors and a good portion of them were along the Yuma and the Cochise border. And what we're seeing is that um, right now, our communities um, are responding with aid um, we have been seeing that for the past year and that our communities are also, um, you know, the border has always been painted as um, from past Governor Jambrewer and now Ducey also um, as a place where terror is happening. Um, and what we have found is quite opposite. And so we're, we're trying to signal that there needs to be federal solutions um, to uh, you know, the, the immigration, um, humanitarian, both aid, um, and communities that are just seeking uh, a better future. Um, we just reported in headlines today that according to POGO, that's the Project on Government Oversight, over 300 people listed on the Oath Keepers membership rolls, that far-right white supremacist group led by Stuart Rhodes, uh, who just got convicted of a seditious conspiracy, over 300 people listed on their membership rolls have worked for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, taking up jobs with the Coast Guard, the Border Patrol, ICE, and the Secret Service. Does this surprise you, Alejandra? It does not. Um, you know, Arizona has had a long history of um, militias and, um, you know, it's it's concerning because this is, you know, something that has been fueled by um, extremist Republicans um, for the past decade here in Arizona. And we need um, real attention to it. Um, and the fueling of hate uh, against migrants um, was something that, unfortunately, Ducey continued under um, Trump's biddings. And finally, Miles Traphagen, we're going to keep Alejandro with us for a discussion about um, Senator Sinema. But uh, you're a member of the Chickasaw Nation, um, indigenous people responding and have indigenous um, people and um, nations, tribes been consulted on what's happening on the border on their land? Uh, this rarely happens. Um, 
there's uh, two tribes that uh, have land on the Arizona border, and that would be the Tohono Autumn and the Kokopa Reservation. Um, in the case of the Kokopa, they were not consulted when Governor Ducey placed shipping containers near the Morelos Dam in Yuma. Um, part of the shipping containers uh, are on Bureau of Reclamation easements that are on the Kokopa Reservation. Um, so they were simply um, ignored in this case. So uh, everything that Alejandro was saying um, is runs very deep here in Arizona as far as a long history of of militias and um, uh, dating back to also union busting in 1918 in Bisbee. Um, there's a, a lot of, um, I guess I would call it, you know, just inherent um, racism and um, authoritarianism built into a lot of the actions that have occurred in the state uh, for a long time now. And so and, this is a, a of, of grave concern to me. And Miles not only ignored, because but they, in, in you know, a number of cases arrested. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the, uh, there was a, a case of, of two Tohono O'odham women who were protesting against the border wall uh, several years ago, and um, they were run through federal court uh, quite severely, and they didn't even do anything to uh, specifically damage property or, or injure anybody. They were just simply exercising their right to defend their homeland. And in that case, if people want to go to democracynow.org, you can see our interviews around those arrests. Miles Traphagen, we want to thank you for being with us, Wildland Network's Borderlands Program Coordinator, and Alejandra Gomez, Executive Director of Lucha, Arizona. Please stay with us. When we come back, we're going to look at Kirsten Cinema saying she's leaving the Democratic Party. Ryan Grimm will also join us. Back in 30 seconds. Sonora querida, tierra consentida, de dicha y placer. Extraño tu suelo, y cifro mi anhelo por volverte a ver. Tus lindas mujeres encienden quereres. Sonora Querida by Los Horizontes and featuring David Hidalgo of Los Lobos. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. We end today's show looking at Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema's decision to leave the Democratic Party, register as an independent. Her announcement came last week, just days after Democrats clinched a 51-seat majority in the Senate with Senator Raphael Warnock's runoff victory in Georgia. Sinema spoke to CNN's Jake Tapper Thursday. You're here to make a significant announcement. I've registered as an Arizona independent. I know some people might be a little bit surprised by this, but actually, I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, a growing number of Arizonans and people like me just don't feel like we fit neatly into one party's box or the other. And so, like many across the state and the nation, I've decided to leave that partisan process and really just focus on the work that I think matters to Arizona and to our country, which is solving problems and getting things done. On Friday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer confirmed Senator Sinema will be able to keep her committee assignments after she said she would not caucus with the Republicans. Still with us, Alejandra Gomez, executive director of Lucha Arizona, that's Living United for Change in Arizona. We're also joined by Ryan Grimm, the Washington, D.C. bureau chief for The Intercept. Ryan, let's begin with you. This certainly was top news over the weekend since uh, mm -hmm. Senator Sinema made this response right after the Democrats were certain 
certainly doing a victory lap. I mean, what, Raphael Warnock um, uh, winning re-election. It was the first time in 90 years that Democrats won every seat they were running for in the Senate. Does this change what it means for a Democratic majority in the Senate? No, not at all. And it, it doesn't matter if she, quote unquote, uh, caucuses with Democrats. Democrats meet on Tuesday. They'll meet they'll meet today for a caucus lunch. She won't be there. But that's nothing unusual. She very rarely showed up uh, for these for these, quote unquote, caucus meetings. What matters is how you count yourself uh, when you're divvying up the committee assignments. And she is still going to count herself as a Democrat for purposes of committee assignments, which means that nominees can move through the committees but based on a majority Democratic vote, and which means that committees will have sub subpoena power. It actually reminds me back uh, when Bernie Sanders first got to the House, there were a lot of blue dog Democrats who didn't want a socialist to caucus with them, but they also wanted him on their committees. So they said, OK, you can be in our committees. You just can't meet with us. Cinema is sort of doing a reverse. She's welcome. She just doesn't want to show up. But no, it, it actually has no, no pra practical effect. The only effect is on her her primary or now her, I guess, her lack of a primary challenge in the Democratic uh, we'll contest coming up. talk about what exactly that means in Arizona and what, um, uh, uh, and yeah, overall. Sure. So she was going to face a challenge from Ruben Gallego. He's, he hasn't made any secret uh, that, that he was going to make this movie. He hasn't made a completely official announcement yet. Uh, he's, a, he's a popular congressman, combat marine, uh, re relatively progressive, certainly relatively progressive compared to cinema. And all, all, all indications were that he was going to, it would be bloody and expensive, but he was going to win that. He was going to win that primary. Cinema is extraordinarily unpopular with the, Dem with the Democratic base. Now, her problem is that she also uh, could not, become a Republican, because obviously if a Republican, a Republican is glad to have Kirsten Sinema causing problems for the Democrat, like that makes them happy. But if it's between, say, Carrie Lake and Kirsten Sinema, a Republican voter is going to is going to take the actual Republican. So what she's doing is she's daring Democrats to run a, 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 a Democrat in the general election, saying I could be a spoiler in this three way race. So don't you dare, you know, throw the seat to a Republican. But I think she underestimates the hostility toward her. I think Democrats in Arizona have made very clear uh, they're going to challenge her uh, no, no matter what. Um, Alejandra, you are there in Phoenix. Um, you're in Arizona right now. Um, you say that Senator Sinema has betrayed voters. In what way? What are your demands as Lucha Arizona uh, to the sitting senator? And has she ever met with your group? Yes. Um, thank you so much for having me. You know, um, since um, her election, she has not met with voters. Um, she has uh, not hosted one town hall. She has not had open meetings with her constituents. Um, and, you know, Time and time again, what we have seen, it's interesting that she says that she wants to get things done. Um, we have not seen her do um, or even lead with issues that matter to voters. And so for us, this comes as no surprise. Um, and I do agree that she um, gravely underestimates how unpopular she is um, amongst uh, her democratic base. And it's a betrayal to her voters that elected her in 2018 that turned out for her 
um, and had high expectations. And what we have seen now is that she has sold her vote to the highest bidder, um, closing up to special interests um, and big pharma. Um, I wanted to go to Bernie Sanders' comments about Sinema's decision uh, to leave the Democratic Party um, that prompted this exchange between Senator Sanders and CNN State of the Union host Dana Bash. Does she have the guts to take on powerful special interests? No, she doesn't. She is a corporate Democrat uh, who has, in fact, along with Senator Manchin, sabotaged enormously important legislation. Ryan Grimm, let's talk about what she has done. And also this latest news of her brokering a deal with the Republican Senator Tillis uh, for immigration reform, mm -hmm. condemning both the Republican and Democratic parties for not coming up with uh, um, immigration policy. Right. And so early, last, early in uh, 2020, 2021, Democrats made clear that they were going to push forward with a, a reconciliation package, which meant it didn't need Republican votes in order to pass what they were calling Build Back Better, which had you know, climate. Uh, it had it had uh, affordable housing. It, it had ch uh, the ch child and family agenda and it. it had a jobs agenda. It had, you know, as you remember, uh, Bernie Sanders wanted six trillion. Uh, the Senate uh, ended up constructing it as three point five trillion. It eventually got whittled down to less than two trillion. But what happened then was that Kirsten Cinema got together with a handful of Republicans and said, if we can do a much smaller infrastructure bill and we can get bipartisan support for it. That will take all the popular things out of the Build Back Better agenda, and then that will kill the Build Back Better bill. So, so the idea that she was actually trying to get things done is, is a misnomer. What she was trying to do is stop a bigger thing from happening by, by delivering something much smaller that she and people like Rob Portman said very explicitly that the, per, that the only reason they got together to do that was to try to take the energy out of Build Back Better. Now, it ended up not working because they passed – the infrastructure bill, and then they still passed the nearly you know two trillion dollar. Uh, they eventually called it the Inflation Reduction Act. And so that that has been kind of her role in the Senate is trying to work with Republicans to do smaller things to prevent to prevent more progressive things from getting done. And that's that, that's similar with what's going on, but not exactly with the, with the immigration piece. Uh, here, uh, you know, she extracted a concession I think for about two million Dreamers to get some type of a path to citizenship in exchange for some dr draconian concessions to Republicans. Although it's not clear that. You know, that even with that, she'll be able to get enough Republicans uh, to come along. And Alejandra Gomez, your response to this deal that she supposedly is brokering. Mm. Twenty five billion dollars um, to beef up border security, security, which there, um, you know, there are numerous studies um, that demonstrate that the border is secure. And so for us. Again, um, the, it is this um, challenge that we face with uh, Kirsten Sinema, um, her primary role being an obstructionist um, and also um, doing the bidding of special interest rather than listening to her constituents. Um, you know, Arizona passed one of uh, the most important pieces um, of it was a ballot referral this year, um, which was Prop 308. And that gives uh, Dreamers in-state tuition. So Arizonans 
already. It was a top vote getter. Um, and Arizonans are ready to see relief, um, real relief. And what we're saying is that $2 million is not enough. And $25 billion to border security, again, is creating um, uh, a, a issue that for us, what we're saying is we actually need to see more investment in people rather than um, targeting uh, and deporting our immigrant communities. Alejandro Gomez, I want to thank you for being with us, Executive Director of Living United for Change in Arizona, or Lucha. And I want to thank Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. Ryan, if you could stay with us, we're going to do um, a post-show interview and post it online at democracynow.org on the big piece that you just released. The railroad fight was the product of eight years of militant rank-and-file organizing. Railroad unions haven't been known for putting up a fight since the 19th century, but newly radicalized workers forced their way into the national conversation. We're going to talk about that. Um, and folks can go to democracynow.org to see it. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Octorina, Dora Simakov, Tamaria Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey, Masood, Mary Conlon, our executive director, Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.